Hello and welcome to Leadership Behaviours Unpacked. I'm Jane Lewis and I'm delighted to be joined today by Kevin Green, founder and CEO of What's Next People and Strategy Consultancy. Kevin has worked as an entrepreneur, CEO and HRD of a FTSE 100 company. He now specialises in working with businesses that want to scale up and develop and has long been recognised as an excellent and award-winning leader. Kevin is the author of the best-selling business book, Competitive People Strategy, and is a TEDx speaker. Kevin's passion is creating cultures where people want to give their best every day and believes that this is an art as well as a science. I've been lucky enough to work with Kevin over the past 20 years, and I'm really privileged that he can join me in conversation today. Kevin has been interviewed by Jeremy Paxman on Newsnight and John Humphreys on Radio 4's Today programme. And he's a sought-after commentator on the UK jobs market. So I've got big shoes to fill today. So it's with great pleasure that I welcome Kevin to the podcast today. So I'm going to kick off uh, just to say that I'm really thrilled that you could join me today. And I wanted to start to talk about, so when we first worked together, which I worked out was about 20 years ago, and I remember hours spent kind of putting the world to rights and having very clear views on business, leadership capability and behaviors and people management. And quite often, I think that for both of us, we often flew in the face of what was the norm at that time. And it often felt like pushing water uphill um, in terms of what organizations had in place or their kind of vision for their strategy. And I think one of the things that I always admire is you had always had a really clear vision of how that world should be. And so the first question I've got for you is, how has that world changed since then? So have we got better? And are we any closer to that vision? Fine. Right. So do you want me to, you want me to answer that? Have you, yeah, have you I would. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. So that's what I'm interested in. That's 20 years ago. And somebody said to me yesterday, are we any better than we were then? In a leadership context particularly, has anything actually changed? Are we actually any better? Yeah. I mean, I would say that I think we have improved. I think it's but it's marginal improvement. I don't think we've made a a sea change. I don't think that we have grasped how to get the best out of people in organisations. I still think, you know, the hierarchical mindset, the way organisations have always been, is still very dominant. You know, top down, leader knows best. We go away and define strategy. We tell people, I can't understand why it doesn't happen, even though we've communicated. You know, that model of leadership and management is still very prevalent. I think we have made, you know, there's a lot of theory. I mean, when I look at organisations, I suppose I see I see agile taking off. I really see people working um, at the front of organisations to find different ways of working in small groups we had lean so i think you know you see elements of great people management in organization but i don't think it's sort of holistically been adopted shall we say so i think there's you know there has been improvement there has been learning there are some organizations that i've come across which i think are very good at it from both a leadership and management perspective but i think there are lots and perhaps the majority which are still poor I was rereading your book the other day, and in that you talk a lot about the people strategy system and the role that leadership plays in that system. 
So when you look at what you just described, about some organisations have moved a long way, but the majority haven't. And I think I'd agree in the ones that I work in, it does feel not much different than it did 30 years ago when I started. Yeah, and I think the interesting thing, Jane, is I don't think it will be the HR agenda and people like us that create the change. I think the change will come as people realise that to be successful commercially, you need to manage and get more out of your people. You need to unleash discretionary effort. You need people to buy in. And that's driven by a whole range of things. I think Mm. that's driven by employee expectations are very different. I think the world in which we compete in is disrupted and turbulent. And I think what that means is organisations need to be more nimble, more responsive. And to do that means that you've got to find ways of allowing the business to innovate and to get the best from your human capital. So I think it will be driven by business leaders. And that's where I see it. I see it a lot with entrepreneurs who have, you know, taken a much more people-centric or human-centric way to run their business. Um, It's very hard. Very hard for a big incumbent to, to, to take this and run with it. Not to say that it's impossible, and I think you can do it, but again, I think it's a, a huge challenge. I think one of the things that always frustrated me the most when I worked within big organizations, and you'll probably remember this, was that sort of, you know, the, the leaders with the giant ego at the top. So it was about that and actually trying to then create a cohesive leadership team at the top that could actually really articulate what they wanted and inspire people and communicate to people. It was often dominated by one or two people. And and how do we change that? You've talked a bit in the past about resourcing entire leadership teams. So rather than replacing one person, how do you see that kind of playing out? And, And the role of teams, I think in general, I'm quite interested in. I think that is where I am seeing some progress. I think most people have accepted sort of leader as hero. You know, I know best just follow me doesn't really work. And it and it limits the ability for people to collaborate and to work collectively. So I do think you're starting to see quite a lot of work around teams. And again, you know, when I talk to HR audiences, you know, I talk to them about what they're doing at an organisational level, and they've normally got a pretty good idea of what they want to do in terms of organisational design, culture, employee experience, what they want to do with individuals. But when I say, so how do you play? What tools are you giving people to create, build, develop, unleash great teams? And there's not very much. No. What's interesting is, You know, it isn't, you know, using organisational tools at a team level. And it's not about managing a team of eight people as a group of individuals. It's how do you get them to work together? And I think that that's where you really start to unlock potential, because I think you'll get different personalities. You'll get, you know, cognitive diversity. People have different views, different ways of looking at things and actually getting them to think about problems and work through um, issues and come up with solutions is the way that you get innovation and creativity yeah, yeah, yeah. and different thinking. And that's if you think about the organizational paradigm I've talked about. So I think that's what you're really looking for in teams, which requires chief execs and organizational leaders to be a bit more humble. Absolutely. To recognize they haven't got all the answers. And their job is to, to create some kind of direction and ask the right questions. You know, that's the point. Yeah. 
you ask the right questions and you've got the right people in the room and you work through it and you create time and space, you'll get the right type of answers. You've got to really believe in the group of people you're working with. And I think the problem with leaders is it's, it's quite an individualistic journey to the top. I think when they get there, they, they want to do it their way. And often that is a little bit mm. what they've seen before. So I think, yeah, we need to think about. So there's a bit about HR challenging that and looking to um, think about how do we get complementary skills and capabilities and views of the world at the top team. And I don't just mean women and, uh, and people from different races. I do mean just the way people are, introverts, extroverts people that have got a very European focus on the world, you know. So I think that's important. But I also think that um, there's this thing about where people work, you know. So I think people have choice. And I think that's most probably becoming more important is that really capable people decide to work in an environment that works for them. And I think that's – yeah. so that that change, I think, is coming because – organizationally we need to be agile and nimble and responsive but i think individuals go this is just dysfunctional i don't want to work here i want to go off and do my own thing you know i want to run my own business i want to work with people i like i want to do interesting work and i'm yeah am i prepared to sacrifice some money and a bit of a package yeah but i'll be happier i'll do what i you know i work with people i like working with and do things that i really enjoy and i think that's what you see and i think you know it's generational as well. I think there's a big shift in generation. Definitely. There's a lot going on, but I do think teams are really, really quite important and perhaps have been ignored for too long in organisations. You know, Laszlo Block, he wrote, the guy that was the HR director at Google. Yeah. One of his great quotes early on is, he says, HR is quite simple. You hire great people, you create some kind of difficult task, you put people into teams, and you sort of get out of the way. Absolutely. So this whole thing about, you know, rules-based process, policy, procedure, you know, that whole thing about error avoidance, I just don't think works in organisations. I think we've got to create, create a much more liberal approach in terms of how people work and what they do. Now, that doesn't mean you can have a free-for-all, but you do need to give people space. I think the other thing as well is that when you talk about humility, so much of the leadership capability frameworks, all that kind of stuff that's gone, you know, it talks about their ability to set direction, make decisions, blah, blah. And they're important things. But actually, the bit that I think is incredibly rare, and or you see pockets of it, as you said before, but it is that bit about having the humility to not believe you have to have all the answers, so as you said, you ask the questions, but you don't assume. So I think in the past, what I've often seen, and, and I'll probably felt the expectation of as well, is that if you ask a question, you know the answer. So people assume that you ask the question knowing what the answer is. So you're told as a leader what they think you want to hear. So it's all that kind of – someone described to me the other day about um, – a guy that I work with talked about watermelon KPIs and he said, it's like the watermelon. He said, so the outside is all the green stuff. And actually that's what you're expected to kind of share. So you tell the kind of boss, it's all going fine. And actually the numbers are manipulated and everything's manipulated to look really fine. But if you slice it in half where the red stuff is, that's actually where the information, the real kind of information and detail and the discussion can happen. But in, in a world where actually 
the answer is yes, or the answer is we know that everything's going okay and in that direction. How do we how do we make it safe for for leaders to say, I don't know the answer, but this is the question that I'm thinking about. And also that bit about actually I got it wrong. And or even let's circle back and see how we could have done this in a different way. Um, and I think probably in the time that we worked together at Royal Mail particularly, we were we were quite good at going, actually, what could we have done differently? But actually, I think it's not the norm to, no. to have that. How, you know, and, and some of it, you know, people will say, oh, it's about culture and creating a safe culture. But how do you do that? How do you, you know, where do, how do the, the top, leaders need to behave to be able to create that well i think it is about creating trust um and you know what we would now call psychological safety wouldn't we mm. uh, um because we have to have a new name for it we do <laughs> to make it sound more important yeah um but i think you 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 know as a leader you most probably have got to you know, create that environment with the people that you work with. So your direct team in a way which says, this is normal. This is how I think it should be done. So you do have to set some ground rules right at the beginning, which is, you know, know, let's be honest, most commercial organizations are pretty clear about where they need to be in the next couple of years, but it's about how do we get there and what do we need to do to be able to, um, achieve those objectives. And I think you have to ask different questions, you know. I think the top-down, you know, the way that we manage change and transformation is too top-down, it's too program- pro- programmatic, it's too project-driven, it's too linear. You know, it's about completing tasks and doing things rather than enabling people to try stuff and learn from it and go again. So I think it is about just how you structure your team. And look, I think this is our journey. You know, that's what I think the, the chief exec or the leader of the was, you know, I think we're here and I think we need to be over here to be successful. I can articulate that sort of broad journey. Now, what I don't know is how we get there. So what does that mean in terms of product? What does that mean in terms of our sales process, our supply chain, all the big strategic questions that, a chief exec or a leader of an organization would have but it's by asking those right questions and really listening to people and saying let's try some stuff you know we're not going to get this right you know i do think it's about experimentation if you think about innovation you know is an innovation a top-down product development process or is it about asking some really good questions and getting frontline staff and managers in a in some companies and creating new ways of looking at things you know, and I think, you know, so I think it's, it is quite profound, the shift we're talking about, but it does come from leadership. It does, you know, it, it, things will not fundamentally change unless the leadership team recognise that their job is to create a conversation within the organisation that creates insight and different experiences and asks different questions and then, we try stuff, you know, we, we, we iterate, we go and try that and learn from it and it didn't quite work. So what do we do again? And I think that is the right approach, you know, and that's been around for 40 years. You can call it continuous improvement. You can call it Kaban, 
Kaizen, you can call it. Now we talk about Agile or Lee. You know, there's tons and tons of tools and processes. But at the, at the heart of it, it's it's asking teams of people to look at problems and come up with solutions and recognising you never get it right first time. And actually making that statement, I think, up front and being able to be able to say, actually, I'm not expecting this to be right first time. And, and I love when the, the word conversation is quite an interesting one, isn't it? Because I think, you know, a conversation requires two people to have an opinion yeah. and it to be okay to have a different opinion and to be able to kind of share that. And, and I think that, that that is so important, I think, about, you know, you've got to trust someone to have a conversation. And, and that's the first rule of leadership is have do you know have you created an environment with your within your top team where people can express their own opinions and you can argue you can fall out about stuff but recognize that that's okay yeah that we, we you know we will come up with the right answer and we have different views and opinions and we might try different things and then we'll work our way through it that's fine that's natural I mean I think the problem is is we've sort of tried we've taken human behavior out of organizations we sort of pretend at work we're something else and i'm interested in emotion i think emotions what gets you out of bed i think emotions the bit that you want you want passion you want excitement you people that you know want to run through walls and change things and do things differently and and so you need to to nurture that it doesn't just come you know and actually what you see in most organizations or a lot of organizations is that passion gets knocked out of people absolutely Absolutely. Oh, it's funny. It just brought something back to my own head. I think I remember having a performance review many years ago before I even knew you. And I think the the comment said something like, Jane now needs to add an air of professionalism to her over-enthusiastic approach. And I remember kind of receiving it and, and feeling a bit hurt, but then thinking, that, that's not right. And I think it was part of a, the start of kind of probably, or, or actually probably just a process of thinking, no, I don't agree with you. But thinking actually, it's the opposite of what you've just said. So what they were basically saying is, Jane, take your emotion out of this. Yeah. Don't be passionate about it. You know, and yeah, sometimes it gets you, it creates a conversation, doesn't it? Because you're not just sitting on the fence doing exactly. Yeah. But yeah, it, it, I wonder how many people are getting that kind of feedback still. Well, you know, all that stuff that Gallup did about strengths, you know, I'm a, I'm a great believer in that. And I think that still organisations spend a lot of time telling people what they're not rather yeah. than telling them what they are. Yeah. And, and you know, most people are go to work to do a good job. They don't go there to cock up or to create problems. They go there to do their best. And I think what you have to do is spend a lot of time reinforcing the positive. You know, and, and, and that's what we don't do. You know, we normally do the positive feedback in about 30 seconds. You're brilliant at this, this and this. Right now, let's get into the rest of our hour, which we're telling you what you shit at. You know? Yeah, you'd do a lot better if you did yeah. this, this and this. Yeah, I, I really like that. And I think it's one of the things that um, I don't think there's an exception, actually. I think when when clients come and talk about you know, they'll come with a particular goal in mind, whether that's about a shift in behavior, a promotion that's wanted, a decision that needs to be made, whatever the reason for coming to to coaching. And the place that I always start is is exactly, you know, about where they are at, that you start where you're at and actually building on the stuff that you're really good at to build that confidence is huge. And, and you're right. Yeah. I think, you know, probably for both of us over the course of creator, I've been told plenty of times what, I'm not good at. I know what I'm not good at. 
But actually, me spending kind of my life trying to get better at counting is probably not going to help anyone. <laughs> and, that's all, and, and then that brings you back to the whole thing about teams again. Yeah. Complete complementary nature of getting people to work. Yeah. with people that have got different skills and different strengths and, and understanding where people are coming from and what they're great at is really, really important. And, and when do we spend our time doing that in leadership teams? You don't. You might do it once yeah. every three, four years, some kind of leadership intervention where there's some kind of 360 or a bit of feedback, but it's not really taken that seriously and it's sort of a bit of a game and everyone gets a bit of a poke and we all move on. And in reality, it's most probably the core to unleashing performance improvement and really moving an organ well, moving a team on and then potentially moving an organization on. And from your perspective, in teams that you've been part of, I think so if we think to kind of Royal Mail days as mm. HR director, and then when you moved on and you're actually CEO, as you yeah. say of an organization that what was your phrase? Something like actually quite sort of dusty at the time and needed kind of bringing round. Yeah. yeah. How did you, were you able to create that as, as kind of CEO? Were you able to? Yeah, I mean, it's, it is different. I mean, so the organisation I was running was 100 people and 100 people isn't bad. So like once every quarter I could get everybody in a room. Yeah. And if you get everybody in a room, you know, and if you, you can communicate, you can paint a picture and you can start to articulate a culture and we celebrated success. And, yeah, so I think you can. In small organisations, I think if the chief executive's got it, it can uh, permeate the whole organisation. Yeah. In a large organisation, you know, like Royal Mail, which is at the other extreme, when I was, you know, we had 200,000 people, you know, 2,000 delivery offices, 74 factories, all those vans and vehicles going here, there, and everywhere every night. How do you touch people? And, you know, you're doing it through layers of management. It's really quite hard. So, how do you do this stuff? I think you have to do it in. You have to do it in groups of people. You can't do it organized. And that's why I have this issue a bit with with this whole cultural debate. You know, yeah. because I think if you look at a dispersed organisation like Royal Mail, was there one culture? Well, there was definitely some trends. I would say there was some trends, you know, operations, you know, and the centre were too at war with each other most of the time. Um, so there were was, was some big trends, big macro trends. But in reality, the difference in a factory and in a, in a delivery office were completely... Very different. Were very different. And when we started to get data on that, you know, around engagement and quality and customer service you could see the difference you know you can see and actually there's always a relationship this is why i talk about engagement because there's always a relationship between engagement productivity and performance and, and you can do it on an axis you know so the point is is engaging people isn't just about being nice to them it's about delivering better results and that's because you can tell people what's important give them ownership, get them to take responsibility, get them to come up with some of the answers. And that, you know, that creates performance improvement and productivity because people feel good about themselves. You know, they give a bit more of what they can do. You know, you look at the, the data from Gallup, only 30% of people, I think it's 30% last time I saw it, are, are fully engaged. So 70% of people just turn up and go through the motions. Yeah. You know, so if you can tap into that and get it up to, 50% or 60% and 70%, you're going to be fine because it's exponential. You know, it's, you know. Absolutely. Yeah. 
and then them sort of naysayers and the doom mongers feel isolated and they shut up you know yeah absolutely and i think it goes back to what we were talking about just now about you know focusing on the stuff that's going well you know if you've got that exponential rise in behaviors that are actually being copied and are actually going well the rest will either follow or they'll shut up yeah always you're either either in a virtuous circle or you're in a vicious circle i don't think i don't think many organizations just stay the same they're normally going in one way or the other yeah and I think that's what that's the work we need to do across organisations is to find the hooks, the tools, the approach to get more of the, each unit going in the right direction, which I think is the leadership bit. Okay. You know, I think that's the point. Investing in culture is about leadership. Employee engagement is predominantly about leadership. I think... Um, Employee experience is predominantly about leadership. So I do think the leadership bit is huge, you know, because they set the tone, they create the conversation, they create the dialogue, they, you know, all of that. They're interested in it. They want people to participate and engage. And there are lots of people that don't. There's loads of and, and people are looking as well. It's back to that trust bit, isn't it? Because people are looking all the time for when the behaviours don't match the rhetoric. Yeah, always. And it doesn't, you know, quite often, you know, organisations, you know, Think about all these values that are everywhere. I mean, quite often they're motherhood and apple pie, aren't they? You know, oh, they are. Integrity and honesty and openness, and I can go on and on and on. Yeah. And, and you go, okay. So, so let, I always go, so which organisation says they're dishonest? They're closed. <laughs> no one ever says that. So it's like, so it's a, you, we yeah. believe in trickery and dishonesty. It's got us where we are. So, <laughs> So that's the whole point, isn't it? So it's got, but, and that's why, you know, if people don't like the Netflix stuff, but I love it. I think that whole thing about their culture deck, you know, that 120 slides, which is forget all the verbiage. We're going to play up a quartile. We're looking, if you've got an average performer, we'll give you a great severance check. If you, you know, we're not going to have any rule. You know, the dress policy is look at yourself in a mirror. That, you know, that's the responsibility and they're very clear about how they want people to behave. And they, they're explicit about how we're hire, how we promote. That's a cultural statement, not a set of values that everyone can't even understand. And there's an argument about, you know. Yeah. And they look exactly the same whether you walk down Oxford Street and every can. That's probably not a good example anymore, is it? Walking down Oxford Street because no one's walking down Oxford Street right now. <laughs> but it's like every business you see would have the same values or pretty much the same values. And it's just nonsense. It's just total nonsense, you know. So I think there's a lot of work goes on at cultural level and organisational level, which will never bring about change. I mean, you know, let's think about the diversity agenda, you know. I just, it blows my mind that people go, I don't understand why there's not change. I go, well, what have we done differently? Yeah. And, and you go, well, we've got, a, you know, we've got a women's group. We're doing some mentoring. You know, we've got a women's leadership programme, blah, 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 blah. And you go, right, okay. Fair enough. And what were we doing 10 years ago or five years ago? Exactly, exactly the same. And it hasn't made any difference. So, and I say this, it's about white middle-class men. And people go, what do you mean? I said, it's about, but the top of most organisations today are white middle-class men. And if you want to change something, the privileged people have to give up on their dominance and their, their approach that has worked for them. And that's where we need to start. Yeah. We need to start at the top of organisations saying, 
You know, you need to make this happen. You can make it happen. You can drive it. And we need to do things differently. Yeah. And it's interesting when you talked before about the the generational shift as well, because I think looking at kind of our kids' generation and actually even people that are only maybe like, you know, 15 years younger than I am, their expectation of work isn't what it was. So I think I remember being offered that job at Royal Mail and my boss at the time saying, so you're going to work full time then? And I was like, no. And he was astounded. Like, what, they're going to give you a job doing that part time? Well, yeah. But actually, I felt it's interesting, isn't it? Because I felt so lucky to be given that opportunity, which is crazy. And but it was it's crazy. But I but I think it was still really unusual at that time to be in that position. Time, you know, so only 15 percent of all the jobs that are advertised talk about flexibility. Yeah. So you, you, if you happen to be one of the eight and a half million people that work part time, predominantly women, you're excluded from eighty five percent of the jobs in the. Absolutely. You know, and and so you get people going on about hiring talent. You go, well, why don't you just put? We're interested in talking about flexibility. You know, you can work in a range of different ways. I mean, it's a really simple thing, but people aren't even fishing in. You know, a huge part of the labour market. Yeah. Because they just exclude it. And, and then it blows my mind. And you talk to leaders and you go, talk about work, you know, flexibility at work. They go, yeah, I've given, you know, this person and that person. This one's going off to have a baby. This one's going to study. This one's got parents or whatever. And they will find a way of accommodating that. But then you go, a job. You've got a good enough reason. <laughs> yeah, well, it's because they rate the individual. Yeah. And they trust them and they think, well, actually, they could, they could make it work on three days or two days or whatever it is. But when we go out to the labour market, we don't trust people. So what we do is we say it's a full-time job. And then if you happen to be working part-time, when do you raise that in the interview? Absolutely. Or do you just not bother applying? Yeah. And, and I've heard really recently as well, kind of, you know, some senior women talking about the fact that actually there is a promotion on offer, but their choice is they have to work full-time to take it. Or if they want to kind of work part-time, then actually they have to take a lower job. And you think, Really? It's 2021, and we're still talking in that way. And, and that almost probably be an organisation that's going on about, you know, we need more women leaders, diversity is important. Yeah. And that's the reality of it. So, you know. Yeah. You know, you have, you know, we, you know what we say and what we believe in has to be what we then deliver. And, and, and you're right, Jane, there is a – organisations often talk with full time, and that's why I think diversity and in, – Inclusion isn't changing because I think it's the privileged few want to keep the game as it is. And why wouldn't they? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, yeah. Okay. I want to kind of switch topic slightly or go back a little bit, actually, because we talked about frontline leaders. Or we talked about kind of leaders in the in the kind of big set, the, the senior sense. And I know that we've talked before about you know, frontline managers and the importance of those people managers and the, and that, and actually, and are they, and I think when we went through that change at Royal Main, we were very focused on frontline managers and what their role was at, you know, delivery offices, mail centres. And you talk in your book as well about the fact, you know, they're not mini leaders, they're not necessarily aspiring leaders, but they have a massive role to play in terms of the organisation. So I'm interested in a couple of things, really. One is around their role today, 
and actually in sort of organizations as they are but also if we look at some of the organizations that are actually the same names pop up though don't they in terms of like these very flat organizations and the terms sort of holacracy is a word that harvard business review talks about and i guess there are a few of those that are very kind of famous the zappos of this world and patagonia and the rest of them how do you see people managers in the future of of work and kind of large organizations can we have self-managed teams do we need them at all what's your what's your thoughts well, yeah. Uh, um, well, first of all, I think you yeah, start from where we are, and most organisations are full of managers, aren't they? They're full, you know, hierarchy. <laughs> hierarchy still exists, and that's how we use it. So, to go from that to self-managed teams is quite a journey. Yeah, yeah. And so, I suppose the starting point is, what do we do with the people we've currently got? And I think the point is, is we need to turn them from being task managers into developers and growers of teams and individuals Mm. so you know we need to get them spending less time sat at computers signing things off and controlling and more time Mm. talking listening giving feedback so i think that's the first stage in the the journey so let's let's shift what they do. Let's take it away from managing the task and getting things done. Mm. You know, the whole thing controlling the situation. Yeah. And again, I do think remote working has helped a lot with this. Yeah. Again, you know, it has forced leaders and managers uh, of teams to focus on outputs and outcomes rather than the input because you can't manage in the same way when everyone's dispersed and you only see them on a team or a zoom call for half an hour you don't know what they're doing now they you know where they're spending their time so you have to articulate this is what we're trying to achieve and this is the output i'd like to see at the end of the month and just let people do it so it's changing and i think it's a good thing because it's you know and there's loads of value to be created by leaders and managers that can do that you know the sort of development i suppose of sort of let's go the whole hog and 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 create really flat structures and, and great teams i mean Yes, I think conceptually that's right, and I've seen it work occasionally. But I still think you often need someone to facilitate and to, and, and it may not be to lead all the time. It may be to lead discussions, to mm. lead, you know. And, and so there is um, a lot of the skills of great people leadership needs to be developed in people. You can't just say, well, there's a team, get on with it. That's what we want you to do and expect it to actually deliver. You have to give people tools and processes and ways of working to support that transformation. So I do think long-term that is the direction of travel, but I think that organisations should start by turning their frontline managers into coaches and leaders of people rather than managing tasks and activity. And I think that would be a great shift. And then we most probably can move from a, you know, where you have a great team where you can rotate some of the leadership activity around it. But again, everyone's got to be skilled and everyone's got, you know, so there's a lot of investment in getting this sort of thing right. Because mm. if you just shift from where we are to how we'd like it to be, you're just going to have chaos, you know, it'll fall apart. Absolutely. So, you know, it's it's an easy thing to talk about, but it's a, and again, most of the organisations that are quoted in Harvard Business Review and some of the books 
are sort of organisations that have been created in the last 10 years, 15 years. Yeah. They're not organisations that have been around for a long time. Yeah. They've got a lot, lot of legacy. You know, the, tra- you know, the transformation of organisations is, is something you have to do, I think, in phases. You can't just abdicate, you know, but that is the right direction to travel. And if I was running a small organisation, I would certainly look at some of those concepts. Yeah. See if they could be adopted and utilised. Yeah. It's, it's interesting kind of going back to when we were talking about culture there and actually how culture is so different. And you take these, you know, really large organisations, you can potentially start to look at some of those concepts in parts of those structures. Well, that's what you're doing, isn't it? You have to break it down into small component parts and um, operate in that way. You know, I think that's, you know, you pilot, you try stuff, you learn from it. You don't go big bang, let's change the whole thing. You just, you take parts of the organization and try stuff yeah so talked about leaders as and, and kind of frontline managers as coaches you got to be kind to me here i wanted to ask you what role you think that leadership coaches can play in delivering kind of rounded leaders of the future so where do we fit in terms of the story that we've been talking about well, I think that I think there is a big role for coaches. I mean, I, I mean, a lot of where did I get into all of this stuff? I mean, a lot of mine came from sport, and I think if you go back to sport, you know, uh, or any kind of learned skill, great violinist, I don't know, conductor, artist, they would have got, they would have people that gave feedback, um, helped them set goals help them stand back and reflect, mm. think about themselves to get different perspectives. So I think, you know, I think coaches are, it's accepted in sport, you know, you know, to, 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 to get great team performance, you, you need a coach. Again, if you think about music or anything where you're going to get people to work collectively, there's a conductor or a team leader or whatever it may be. So I can't quite understand why it's so widely accepted in all other sorts of walks of life where we struggle with it within um, a sort of business context, whereas, you know, 75, 80% of all work is done in teams. And, you know, and, and what we need is someone that can, you know, help set goals and can give feedback and nurture and listen and mm. hold up the mirror and, and again, external coaches are valuable because I think it's, you know, sometimes you need an external objective perspective. You know, it's quite difficult to get that always internally. Yeah. Because people are bought into the organisation, the power relationships, an external coach can can challenge in a different way, you know, mm. and get people to see things from a different perspective. Yeah. I, I think, and, and actually one of the things that I've seen in the last few years um where I've been focused more and more purely on um, coaching is that, you know, senior leaders particularly, it's quite a lonely place. So particularly, you know, what we've just talked about, you know, you're trying to be the best you can be in the environment you're in. You're trying to be vulnerable enough to be able to let people trust you and to share that. And yet, where do you turn when actually you're not sure that the stuff you're doing is quite right or you just want a bit of a sounding board around understanding. If I, I suppose I look at myself, Jane, and I'm a, <laughs> I'm a, um, I was probably, you know, quite a confident person. I sort of believe in this. 
a bit, you know. I've had the feedback over the years. But and it is lonely. Running a team or an organization or in a big job is very lonely. Um, because you can't always you can show some vulnerability, but you know, there is you, you need to find a, a safe environment to explore. And I think some of it's just thinking things through. Yeah. You know, one of the things that executives have is very busy lives, you know, busy work lives, but home life's a rush, everything is condensed, you know. So actually spending some time to reflecting and giving themselves some space is quite important, as well as the coaching, if you know what I mean. And the coaching can be a, a yeah. catalyst for that, or just to stand back and have a look at stuff, you know. And I mean, I've certainly used coaching at different periods in my career, and it's always been very valuable. Mm. It gets me to think, you know, someone will ask questions and go, oh, yeah, that's a good question. I need to go away and think about that a bit more. I mean, it might be about how I'm doing something about how I'm approaching a problem, can be about how hard I drive myself and other people, could be all sorts of stuff. But, you know, and, and that's really valuable. And, and and so I think a coach with some space and time is is, is an asset to any leader, really, particularly if they're in a big organisation and particularly if they're managing some kind of change or transformation. Yeah. I'll tell you, actually, I was going to ask you my kind of final couple of questions because I've got an eye on the time. I want you to, if I could ask you one more question, what were you hoping I might ask you oh, I don't know. that I haven't asked you to talk about? I don't know. Um, I could talk about, I mean, I suppose, I think where you started is the bit that interests me. Why aren't we making more progress? Why mm. aren't things changing? You know, I think that is something that I, I, I grapple with a lot. And the rhetoric's there, the thinking's there, the tools are there. But I, I, and I, so I struggle with that. And I don't know whether it's just this mindset we've got ourselves in this relentless activity of being busy yeah and again all this working at home and remote stuff hasn't helped because i think people have got incredibly long days where they're doing everything so i think you know i think we've explored what i most probably would want to i suppose the other thing would be the role of hr and all of this you know are they are they part of the problem or are they part of the solution and i think a large part of hr is part of the problem yeah in that we we know best. We'll design systems and processes. We'll put them into organisations. We'll then make sure people do it. We want to ask people. Very rarely do we ask people. If they come up with a competency framework and absolutely <laughs> develop a performance management system. And the more complicated, the better. The more complicated the get, the more you know. Question. And then we don't ask line managers who have to use it. And we don't ask frontline staff. So, you know, there's a lot of work goes on in software and about UX, about uh, user experience. Yeah. And I think that I think HR needs to adopt a very different approach about designing and working within the business, which is much more about working with people and coming up. And again, what we talked about, small teams, try something, iterate, go again, rather than top down. You know, we, we, we become part of the bureaucracy. Yeah. You know, we know best. We've created a form and everyone's got to do it and we've all got to do it twice a year at a certain time and we chase people about whether they've done it. We're not really interested in the quality of the conversation. No, and then you just get into this bizarre, well, actually, I'll just put any old crap down because yeah. I don't actually... And if you... I do this with audiences sometimes. I talk about performance management and use it as a, a thing with HR and go, so why do we do it that way, guys? Why do we do it that way? And eventually, having gone through this, you know, got a few answers, someone will say... Well, because they wouldn't do it unless we told them how to do it. Managers, 
wouldn't <laughs> yes wouldn't do it yeah twice a year and get set goals and and give feedback and and then you go so when do we take the proper way when do we take and we don't do we no you know, so it's again top down bureaucratic we know best just do what i say and so that's why i think hr is sometimes part of the problem mm. now that's not to say we need to pay people and we need to do all of those sort of services and give contract letters and deal with grievances and this, all of that's got to be done but the, the design of organizations and all of the development work that we do all the od stuff We've got, to, you know, we've got to do it in a in a different way. I think. Yeah. I think HR, but that's one of my big things, I suppose. Yeah. It is interesting because I think I've been out of sort of a HR function for quite a long time, but I feel like I could slot straight back in because nothing's really changed. And yeah, back at I guess that very beginning when we talked about well, actually, what has kind of shifted in the last twenty years, and I remember kind of you know probably way before that talking about performance management systems and thinking well, actually. We don't really need them. And, I, and and actually, there was all that talk, wasn't there, about do we take them out? We're going to go through that whole circle of, you know, forced ratings and everything else and rankings, and then we take them away, but then we can't trust people. So it all comes back, doesn't it, to that bit about we need to trust that people managers will manage their people and support their people. And actually, performance management becomes completely irrelevant if you're already having those conversations because it just should be just a summary for whoever else might be wanting to look at talent or whatever. Yeah, yeah. So that, that's it. I think that, I mean, I think that, you know, so the people that are advising leaders around organisational development, growth, OD, culture, which is predominantly HR, have got up their game. Yeah. We've got, you know, hugely up our game in the next... Yeah few years to be able to help organizations embrace some of the stuff we've been talking about okay i got two last questions for you and there and there i want some insights into kind of your kind of current world within this kind of whole working from home so the first thing i wanted to ask you is what do you do kind of right now to add some focus and structure to your time well i mean yeah it's quite interesting doing the sort of uh, work I'm doing, which is, you know, sort of non-exec work plus some consultancy work and obviously do a lot of presentations normally before COVID and stuff. And so it, it, I'm sort of in control of my own work agenda. I mean, I just, I suppose I exercise more. I can make sure I get fresh air. It's all the basics really, isn't it? You know, and again, the one thing I found about um, writing, I find writing quite therapeutic. And I find it quite helpful in terms of just thinking through. Well, first of all, if you're going to write anything, you have to read a lot and you have to think a lot, you know, and, and, and that I find quite helpful. So while I'm very busy doing stuff, I, I'm quite lucky that I've got the chance to reflect and think, you know, and, and, and I, you know, you don't always get that in big jobs. Yeah. But it's something I remember because I remember you kind of getting quite cross at one point about the lack of interest in reading of people, particularly people in HR. I remember you walking across the office and going, there's a pile of unopened, you know, journals, magazines, what you know, kind of irrelevant. And you were like, they're not even out of their packet that people just weren't even reading them. And it's it's to be honest, that sort of I remember that comment very, very well. And it's kind of kept me quite focused on my own I guess reading and actually being able to what I subscribe to what I listen to 
So yeah, I was listening to you way back then. And I think, but it's important because it's about, I guess, having that breadth of view, isn't it? And being able to understand different perspectives and insights. And I think that's it. I think that sometimes is it's about how do you get the challenge? How do you think things through? And sometimes it's it's by reading people that have got contrary views to your own. You know, and, and that's important. So you understand stuff, you know, and it's not just I know best, I've thought about this, well, I'm going to do it this way. It is about is there different ways of doing this? Have other people chat you know come at it in a different way? Yeah. You know, and, and to do that, you know, it's about breadth of thinking, isn't it? It's just about giving yourself some space and time and finding some different stimulus, you know, and coaching's part of that, as is reading, as is, you know. But also sometimes just giving yourself some time off, doing some exercise and going for a walk. Your brain, you know, I'm a great believer, as I think you remember, I always used to sleep on stuff because I, I, take, I can I make gut decisions, you know. So, again, one of the things I've learned about myself is always force myself to, to go, yeah, yeah, okay, I'll leave that. I'm back to that tomorrow because I'll make a better decision. Because I'm quite, I'm, you know, I'm quite fast-paced. I'm quite, yep, yeah, got that. Right, let's do this then. Yeah. Yeah, have I really thought that through? Have I looked at all the sides of it? Have I contemplated the consequences? Not always. So if I if I sleep on it, I tend yeah. to do just to give you that chance to reflect and absorb rather than yeah. yeah. I might take that as advice for myself actually as being someone slightly similar. Right. Well it has been fantastic to talk to you. Okay. Been good to talk to you as always. Thank you very much. Kevin, thank you so much for joining me today. I've really enjoyed the conversation and I hope that you've enjoyed listening too. I'd like to leave you with a couple of takeaways to think about and I'd love to hear your thoughts and perspectives. The first takeaway for me is how critical self-awareness is for any leader. Knowing yourself is the only way that you can become the best version of yourself, building up what you do well to capitalise on your strengths and changing your behaviour where that can develop your capabilities. Kevin gave an example of learning to sleep on a big decision to check out his gut instinct, and I think this is a really good example of this. The second takeaway for me is the need for organisations to shift away from the ego-driven, singular top leadership roles, instead focusing on entire top leadership teams. I think this shift in approach will enable teams to have the humility and the courage to be able to circle back and learn as they lead. The final point for me today is about the role that coaches play to support the capability of frontline people managers and also providing a sounding board and development space for senior leaders. If you're interested to learn more, please don't hesitate to get in touch. And thank you so much for joining us today. If you'd like to hear more conversations about leadership, behaviours and culture, then please subscribe. Thank you.